The Doctor is back in the house. Doctor HQ Rick Wilton next on Baseball HQ Radio. by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a foul. Well, field. Way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of June the 23rd, and show number 23 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Rick Wilton, Dr. HQ from BaseballHQ.com, we'll have our regular contributors from the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Matt Beagle. Also, our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about whether you should follow the new Rockies pitching strategy on your fantasy team. In our regular minor league minute, Rob Gordon looks at Houston outfielder George Springer. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about his Alex Cobb story, A Tale of Love and Loss. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Joey Votto is leading the league in doubles, walks, intentional walks, on-base percentage, slugging, and OPS. And he's just 16 points behind Josh Hamilton in slugging, or he'd be leading the majors. We gotta talk some baseball. And it's the first inning, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. It's good to be here. Of all the stories, Nick, we might have thought about in the National League as we kind of head towards the midway point, uh, we would have looked around at all the shortstops in the league and tried to figure out who might be leading the league in home runs. And guess what? We would probably not have guessed it would be Jed Lowry of Houston. Probably not. I mean, not a guy you'd expect to, to be leading the league in home runs, given his given his history. But you know, here's a guy who's always had a lot of talent, uh, and uh, this year finally is getting a chance to play regularly. And uh, at this point, 13 home runs, a 141 PX, so that power seems entirely legitimate. Uh, and actually hitting for a decent average. Uh, batting average is 269, XBA 268. So playing very well. Uh, obviously liking that uh, that ballpark in Houston. Uh, the only thing about Jed Lowry that you've got to remember as you head to the second half is his injury history, which makes him a risk every time he takes the field. Yeah, that's right. And and the, the skill set, while it seems fairly stable over the last few years, is doesn't really look like the kind of thing that would lead you to expect this. 
the uh, power index of 142, the power index is not created as a skill thing. It's created as an outcomes thing. We right. total up his doubles and triples and home runs and so forth, which means there can be a pretty significant park effect. Uh, balls that might be outs in San Diego go for doubles and home runs in other parks, especially a park like Houston, which might inflate that power index a little bit. And he's had a 152 in the past in 2010, which is pretty good, but 83 only in 2011. So this is this looks like an unstable skill set, Nick. It does indeed. I mean, it's one of those things where I mean, we're getting some luck involved. He's got a 14% home run for fly rate, which is the highest he's ever had. So uh, that that could come down. So certainly some luck involved and certainly some part effect, park effects involved. But uh, certainly at this point, a bit of a breakout for Lowry. It is, and we should give him credit where credit is due. He's always been a very flyball-oriented hitter, up, up around 50%, 51% so far this year. So he's full value for getting the ball in the air, if nothing else. And, and if you're going to play in a home-run park, you might as well get the ball in the air and take advantage. Very definitely. Over in Philadelphia, Cliff Lee of Philadelphia is having a tr- another terrific year, great skills. Hasn't had a single win through uh, 12, 11 or 12 starts. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that amazing to take a look at that? I mean, you look at Lee's skills, and they are almost exactly on a par of where they were a year ago. Uh, Homer for fly rate is up just a little bit, but really this guy is pitching extremely well. There's not a, a problem with his skills. Command ratio of 5.5, uh, BPV of 144. I mean, those are the kind of skills that uh, that are obviously elite, but no wins at this point in the season. Just a, a, a whole lot of bad luck. I mean, if you look at uh, at the kind of run support he's had, he, he left five games tied, uh, left a couple of games with leads, and they got blown. Uh, in, 11, in 11 starts, five of them only one zero one or two runs scored. Uh, in four of them, uh, three, four, or five runs scored. So not getting a lot of good run support. The bullpen has not been supporting him once he does leave the ball game, and he's been pitching deep into games, uh, pitching into the eighth inning on those two that he uh, – he uh, had blown leads. So uh, really a lot of bad luck that we would expect to turn around. When you look through the list of of games as they go, it, it's like the only time he gets five runs of support is when he's having a bad outing himself, and it costs him. You know, in 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 a lot of instances, you could say, well, gosh, if some of those games where he got five runs support was happened to be the game where he only gave up one or two himself, which is a lot of his starts, he could easily have five or six wins now. Instead, he's got zero. Very definitely. It just goes, I think, to show how fickle that win category is in terms of uh, uh, in terms of the stats that get compiled. Yeah, it is. Uh, of all of them, it is. I was just thinking about Clay Buchholz got drafted in a, a league that I play in, and I kind of looked at him, but the price was too high in the auction. And here's a guy, his ERA is well over 5. His whip is well over 1.5. These are terrible statistics. His skills are not that good. He's got eight wins. He's uh, he's eight and two so far this year because every time he steps on the mound, they they score seventeen runs or something. You know, it's there's just no rhyme or reason to it. And Nick, doesn't that suggest to you that no matter how appealing it might be to look at a guy like Cliff Lee or Sabathia or Dan Heron uh, to pursue wins in the wins category in a rotisserie scoring league, it's really a, a fool's errand to chase after them. Yeah, it really is, I think. I mean, you've got to look at, you, you've got other categories in ERA and WHIP that, uh, you know, that, that are probably much more uh, important in terms of looking at overall skills when, when it comes to drafting someone. Staying with the pitchers uh, in Washington, which has one of the best rotations in the league, uh, we're going to see Ross Detweiler getting back in there. We are. Ross Detweiler is getting back in the rotation, and it's just uh, it's a result of uh, Chen Min Wang uh, performing extremely poorly. Uh, and so... Uh, he re- Wang replaced him in the rotation in May, uh, and now uh, Detweiler is coming back. And if you look at 
If you look at what's happened to Detwater this year, it's kind of an interesting sort of uh, a pattern. In April, he had a 1.64 ERA, pitched extremely well. The skills were there to match it. Uh, we looked as it looked as though he was going to have a real breakout. I mean, I think we even mentioned somewhere on the site that this could be a breakout year for Ross Detwater, and then everything kind of fell apart in May. Uh, 5.34 ERA in May, uh, skills dropped considerably. His DOM was down. Uh, his uh, command was down, dropped from 3.2 in April to 1.8 in May. Uh, and suddenly in June, the ERA is back up, 1.59. He looks extremely good. But what you've got to, got to see as you look at those lines is that the skills in June look an awful lot like the skills in May, not a lot like the skills in April. Uh, again, a 1.8 command rate in June. Uh, and his fly ball rate has been going up by the month, 25% fly ball rate in April, 40% in May, 52% in June. So uh, although he's had a, a good month in terms of a lucky ERA, uh, I don't really think that he's someone you want to pounce on just because he's moving back into the rotation. And his whip is under one for June, which really seems remarkable given the fact that his control ratio is up around four. I suspect if we look at his hit rate, we're going to see something really weird, and indeed it is. Yeah, very definitely. So, I mean, here's a, here's the thing that uh, a guy that looks good, uh, but I would say not someone to spend your money on in uh, in terms of a uh, free agent pickup. 12% hit rate uh, for the month of June, which is ridiculous, of course. And, gosh, he's given up four walks per nine innings. He should be giving up roughly triple the amount of hits that he's given up, which would mean that that uh, 1.00 whip, roughly, is going gonna, is gonna to balloon in, in short order when some of those hits start finding their way through. Another interesting thing about Detweiler, Nick, is that while his fly ball percentage has been climbing, his ground ball percentage has been dropping, but his line drive percentage has been climbing as well. It's all, all his ground balls are becoming liners and fly balls, uh, a really a bad sign for any starting pitcher. Two, two very bad things for a starting pitcher. So I think, uh, I, 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 think I would want, not want to predict how long Ross Detwater might remain in the rotation. Uh, he may do far worse than uh, Chen Ming Wang was doing. And finally, in Chicago, one of the guys we really liked going into 2012, Nick, was the uh, Canadian, I should say, starting pitcher Ryan Dempster. H- had great skills over the last few years, but really not the results to show for it. And here he is. Uh, we're in 2012. We really liked him. And uh, here he is. He's only got three wins, but his ERA and whip are fantastic. Uh, 2.11 ERA, 1.02 whip, and now he's going on the DL with tightness in his right lat. Uh, expected to be a fairly short DL stay, but there's some kind of ominous things in the background. If you look at if you look at what's been happening with his DOM by month, started out in April with striking out 10 batters per nine innings. That dropped to seven in May. DOM in June is all the way down to 4.9. Uh, to make up for it, he's been he's been getting the ball over the plate. Only 1.2 walks per nine innings in June, but you've got to worry a little bit when you see someone's DOM rate dropping like that. Uh, Maybe it's a result of the lat. Maybe that's been bothering him in a while, and it's it's just now showing up. Uh, but again, it's just someone to keep that on your radar, keep the concern in mind, uh, see what happens when he comes back from the DL if he's able to get his dom rate back up. He has not allowed an earned run in three starts, which is tremendous, of course. But he's got a, a 19% hit rate, which is well below the 30% average that he had, for instance, in May. His uh, his strand rate a hundred percent. Every runner that he's allowed 100% on hundred percent strand rate for June. Isn't that isn't that wonderful? Don't you wish you could do that? <laughs> yeah, boy, I'm telling you, if you, if no runners that you allow on score, and don't forget that includes 
uh, runners you leave to your bullpen. Right. Uh, that that gets factored into that, uh, which is not which is kind of uh, muddies the waters as far as how much it is a skill. Because if you leave two runners on and your relief pitcher lets them score, I mean that in, that affects your strand rate. Whereas uh, your competitor on another team leaves the same two runners on, the bullpen comes and gets somebody out, and that's a zero percent for that. So it's a it does muddy the waters a little bit. But a hundred percent strand rate under any circumstance is simply not sustainable. And in fact, he's had a pretty high strand rate all three months this year he has indeed had a very high strand rate there's a lot of luck involved here if you look at ryan dempster last year uh uh, expected era of 3.53 in the first half 3.92 in the second half wound up with an era of uh, close to five in the first half 4.59 in the second half that luck has just flipped this year his era his expected era is 3.56 right about where it was a year ago but suddenly he's getting good luck instead of bad luck and producing a wonderful era and uh, we'll be talking with Rick Wilton, Dr. HQ, about Dempster and this lat issue because, uh, as you said, the declining DOM rate seems to, think, seems to indicate that here's a pitcher who was hurting, uh, maybe adjusting his delivery in some way to try to compensate for the fact he couldn't bring it the way he wanted to and somehow combining a little bit of luck and making sure the ball's over the plate to cut down on walks. But let me ask you the, the short-run question here, Nick. Uh, Ryan Dempster, if somebody offered him in a trade to you, would you be interested? Not right now. I sure would not. All right, Nick. Thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. All right. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. And Matt, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. All right, let's start with a couple of surprising home run guys. Uh, nobody's been more surprising banging out the home runs than Trevor Plouffe of the Twins. Seven home runs in seven games earlier this month. Is this guy for real, Matt? Well, he's for real for the month of June, I'll tell you. I've watched several of his games, and everything you throw up on the inside part of the plate to the middle of the plate, he's jumping on and ripping out of target field, which isn't the easiest home run park in the league. Uh, this is obviously a short-term trend. Uh, he's not going to keep up this level of performance. His home run per fly ball rate is 25%, which is two and a half times what it was in 2011. So this is not a 40 home run future hitter. However, Plouffe did, did provide some home run per fly ball rates of 18% using his major league equivalents in 2010. So he does have uh, decent power. His power next was 100 back then, 112 in 2011. So he probably does have 20 to 25 home run power. And for a guy who qualifies at so many infield positions and sometimes in the outfield, it is a valuable weapon to have on your bench. But I certainly don't see him as being an anchor to your squad, or one of those short-term fluke outputs who could have some long-term power value on your roster. Uh, Major League teams are very good at identifying guys who can hit the ball hard, and they try to get them on their rosters and get them playing time. And nobody's really done that for Trevor Plouffe. And then all of a sudden he has this barrage is the only way to describe it. And my concern is that somebody rosters him might get the old Trevor Plouffe, which is three home runs in the previous six months or whatever the figure might be. Yeah, Again, this is not going to be a consistent contributor to your roster. You're playing a hunch here, and if you're in a deep league and you want some pop up the middle, I'm certainly he's off your waiver wire by now, of course, but don't go overpaying for him in a trade, but when he cools off, uh, maybe the time that you swoop in and say he does have some pop. Some other things, he has a, a low 21% hit rate, and his contact rate has risen this year, and so is his walk rate. So we've seen some positive signs that this guy could be a contributor in the infield, I think another thing working against him is probably his glove isn't the best. It's not like he's cemented a position in the in- Twins infield last year or this year, even with a streak. 
He's sort of been a utility guy who they move around wherever they need them, and that tells you that he's not an outstanding glove man at any one position. Alexi Casilla, obviously a much better fielder at second base, for example. So uh, Plouffe is sort of looking for a spot to land in, and that tells you that his defense isn't going to give you give him any playing time either. It's going to have to be the hot bat. Well, there was that hint of power in 2011 in the minor leagues at Rochester. In uh, 2010, he had about 440 at-bats and 15 home runs. He had half as many at-bats the next year, plate appearances, I should say, and the same 15 home runs. So something was developing there. His on-base percentage jumped to 384 in his uh, minor league year in 2011 as well. So you know, he's just coming into his age 26 year. Maybe it's a real thing. I suspect not, but I guess we'll see. Another surprising uh, power source over the last month or so has been Kyle Seeger of Seattle. Never re- really regarded Matt as a power source, but here he's got five home runs in June and 10 for the year. Yeah, this guy's really emerging as well. We see a power index here of 130 so far in 2012, so 30% above league average. He was more of a good fielding uh Low batting average guy, maybe hit you 250, maybe get you 10 homers. But he's going to hit that in the first half, it looks like. Uh, we do see some batting average growth here. His expected batting average is 268, about 12 points higher than 2012, 2011. His uh, walk rate's up a little bit to 9%. He's basically maintained his contact rate okay coming up to the majors. But I just really find it hard in that ballpark that his home runs are going to keep going like this. He's only 24. Yes, he could have uh, found something in his swing that allows him to have this kind of power, but I want to see this for a full season. I'm very skeptical. Again, he might be a 20-homer guy, but I would see that more in the future as he matures and gets more secure in the league as opposed to the 2012 season. And I know we're we're probably going to end up talking about, uh, when we come to uh, James Shields in a minute, about park effects and these kind of things, but when you look at at Kyle Seeger's home run record, two in Tampa, two in Texas, one at uh, Seattle against Minnesota, then at Colorado, at Chicago U.S. Cellular, at Angel Stadium, at Arizona, and uh, then uh, those are the kind of parks where it's easy to hit home runs, and maybe he was just taking advantage of that, but it's still not really something you can count on, especially for a guy who's going to play half his games at Safeco. Exactly, and I think we're looking at really small sample sizes, so you know, continuing those you know, one home run in that ballpark while he's there for three games, you know, or maybe he gets two out because the wind's blowing out, and that can skew his numbers. If he happens to hit the right ballparks at the right time, just like some teams hit other teams when they're down all the time all season and ride it to a pennant. Other teams seem to face opponents who are hot every time they, every series they walk into. The other teams won their last five out of six. And even though it's a good team, they underperform that whole season because it just seems to work out that way. I think in Seager's case, as you mentioned, he's been fortunate to be hitting the ball hard in the parks that are easy to put it out. I can't see him being a 20-home run guy at the end of the year. Another power surprise in the American League, Matt, but on the bad side of things, it's been the surprising lack of power for Mark Reynolds of the Baltimore Orioles. He just has five swats this year, and that's uh, on, a, on a pace that's going to leave him way short of what we were expecting. Yeah, this guy, you know you're going to take a batting average hit, but you really count on that home run production, uh, hitting over 30 three of the last four years. Reynolds is one of those guys who this year has been fighting an oblique injury. We've heard so many injuries in the league, and that's really caused his home run per fly ball rate to be cut almost in half, down to 13%. It's been at least 20% each of the last three seasons. Uh, his fly ball rate has also fallen to 41%. It's been 47% or higher each of the previous three seasons. 
His hits are falling in. He has a nice 34% hit rate. His walk rate has gone up from 12% to 16%. So and his, he's maintained his contact rate. It's a poor one, but he, he, that hasn't dropped as it had in some previous seasons. He still has a 63% contact rate, which is a high for him in the last five years, along with 2011. So his skills overall are okay. It just seems that his oblique injury has got his home run per fly ball rate down. So if he's healthy, there's no reason to think that he can't have the same home run production in the second half of the season that he's had in his past. So this is a guy who I think is a decent buy-low candidate because most people are going to be shying away from Mark Reynolds. All right, and uh, staying with power, but this is no surprise, Curtis Granderson of the Yankees is up to 21 this year, seeming to just carry the momentum from last year without even pausing to take a breath. Surprised to a lot of people. I think you and me both thought that Granderson would regress a little bit in 2012 because he had what seemed to be a career year in 2011. But whatever things he did in 2011 to correct himself against lefties have held up. He's hitting 280, or excuse me, 271 against lefties this year. Um, what's interesting about Granderson, though, I don't think he can keep this home run pace up. 31% home run per fly ball rate. His career high was 21% in 2011, and before that. The highest of the last five years was 14%. So very unlikely he's going to keep up that 31% home run rate. We also see that his fly ball rate is down, down to 37% from 48 average the past three years. So he's not hitting as many fly balls, but yet a higher, much higher percentage are going out of the park. And that tells me that he's not going to keep up this power at the second half of the season. And he's also stopped running. His speed score is down to 93 below average for the first time in the last five years. He usually was at least 21% above average. So the stolen bases are disappearing. And uh, I think his home runs are going to be a lot less frequent from here on out. So this is a great trade high guy, in my opinion. And, you know, Granderson has an unusual left-hander, right-hander pitcher split in that he's hitting much higher batting average against left-handers, as you mentioned, around 270 uh, against 243 against right-handers. But two-thirds of his home runs are against right-handers. He's having much greater power success. Uh, hitting the right-handers than he is against the left. Is is that something that's a cause for concern, that he can't seem to put the two things together on either side? Well, I think once he displays a skill, he owns it, and I could see his batting average against right-handers returning to previous levels in his career. However, if you look at his last two years here, 2011-2012, his contact rate went down to 71%. 2008 was 80%, 2009, 78, 2010, 75. It's a big drop-off over five years. He's obviously swinging more for the fences, especially from the right side, and that's hindering his batting average. He's becoming an all-or-nothing guy from the right side. Against lefties, he's obviously concentrating more on putting the ball in play, and that's helping his batting average. All right, uh, let's move from the hitters to the pitchers. Uh, probably the biggest story of the week for the American League, Jared Weaver returns to the Angels rotation. Well, Jared Weaver's certainly been a top pitcher in the entire league, has matched his ERA from 2011 at 240, has improved his whip. Uh, I think there's some flies in the ointment there. His hit rate is down to 23%. He still has a high 76% strand. His expected ERA is 358. So I expect some regression. You and I have had some debates about this. One good thing about him is he has lowered his fly ball rate to 41%. He's always been a fly ball pitcher. Even last year, that excellent 2011 season, had a 49% fly ball rate. He's lowered that to 41% and maintained a very similar strikeout to walk ratio of 3.5. So all his skills, except for the hit rate and the strand rate, say he's the same pitcher. Um, I would argue that 
the expected ERA is going to catch up with him, and I expect an ERA near three as opposed to two point four. And we have a bet about this. I'm going to say he finishes under three, as as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and for the same reasons. I think the ability to generate infield fly balls is a skill that we haven't teased out of the uh, out of the fly ball ratio and incorporated into expected ERA. This guy generates an awful lot of infield fly balls, and at some point after five years of it, we have to say, you know what, he just has this skill, but I guess we'll see. A guy who's been a disappointment, a really big disappointment actually, especially lately in Toronto's left-hander Ricky Romero. What's going on here, Matt? We talked about that in the beginning of the season, that Romero would struggle this year. Uh, He had some factors leaning in his uh, advantage in 2011, and in 2012, we're seeing that normalize a little bit. In 2011, he had a 25% hit rate, very low, and a very high 80% strand. Not a bad pitcher, but not someone who should have an ERA under three. And this year, we're seeing a 4.28 ERA, mostly a result of poor control. He's walking an extra batter per nine innings and striking out less. So now his command rate is 1.5, below the two we normally like to see. He's maintained his ground ball rate. Okay, but he's giving up a high home run per fly ball rate of 16%. And that tells me that this is a good time to go get Romero because that unlucky home run per fly ball rate. If he can correct himself, we see an expected area here of 4.01, which is a little bit less than his actual ERA. With a great offense behind him, he could be a guy that is going to get some wins in the rest of the season. And he's been very consistent. He has a 57-14 uh, dominance disaster in his quality start rating so far. So he's been very acceptable. He has a history of success, whereas we knew he would struggle. I think his owners so far probably didn't expect to struggle like this and maybe willing to give up on Romero. Yeah, I think his true ERA probably lies somewhere around 3.7, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if that's where he finishes the year. And if that's the case, then obviously he's around 425 right now, so there's going to be some good some good starts coming up over the next little while. Ricky Romero looks intriguing, to say the least, and attractive if you really want to get aggressive. Another guy you could might say that about, James Shields down in Tampa. Matt, we've talked about James Shields before, and here he is again after a pretty good year last year, but just pedestrian this year, 372 ERA, 134 whip. Will the real James Shields please stand up? Well, the average fan wonders who the real James Shields is with a 518 ERA and a 282 in 2011. But longtime HQ subscribers know that we've been on James Shields. We predicted his breakout several years ago, and we've been on him as having a great skill set ever since. Uh, this year's no exception. He's a 372 ERA, but a 3.3 expected ERA. He has a 32% hit rate, which is a little high. And the thing people don't understand about Shields is he's transformed himself from a fly ball pitcher to a ground ball pitcher. He always had the problem with the long ball. And in 2011, he got 46% of balls on the ground. This year, 55% of balls in play are on the ground, only 27% in the air. He's increased his strikeout rate, a little worse in the walks, but overall kept his command right around that 3-1 to one level that we like to see. He's been unlucky with the home run per fly ball rate at 14%, so we would expect him to improve from here on out based on that high hit rate, the high home run per fly ball rate, and the fact he has a proven history of a 3-1 to one strikeout to walk ratio that few can match. And uh, we talked a little bit about James Shields' home run rate and whether or not it's going to regress. And we started talking about the parks he pitches in, and he's given up 10 home runs so far this year, uh, two of them at Texas, which is a real good home run hitters park, Uh, three of them uh, at Yankee Stadium, which is an excellent park for home run hitters, Uh, Baltimore as well. He's had... He's had a home run given up there, and no home runs given up in parks like uh, Minnesota and Detroit, where you'd expect. 
So to what extent is this a park effect and maybe even going to get better for James Shields? Well, I think that's a big part of it. Shields is a smart pitcher who controls the strike zone. He's very consistent with a 64-7 dominance disaster rate. And we see him getting better with age. Same base performance value right around 105, 107 the past three years. A very consistent guy, knows what he's doing, and he's going to pitch to the park that he's in. In those home run havens, you're going to make a mistake, and most of the good pitchers who are going to pound the zone are going to give up a few homers. A lot of guys in the Hall of Fame have given up a lot of home runs, and Shields is no different, especially when you get in those hitter-friendly parks. But overall, riding them through the year, and this is something I sort of talk about in the Market Pulse segment this week on HQ Radio, is you got to ride a guy like Shields and not try to overthink it and play the matchups because that's just going to cost you wins and cost you standings points. And finally, a pitcher who's having a terrific year that I'm sure a lot of people are going to say in retrospect they saw coming, but really I don't think anybody did. Jason Hamill in Baltimore looks really good, a 287 ERA. His whip is down around 116, 115. Jason Hamill, is he for real in this tough little park? Boy, he really is. He's increased his strikeout rate to by three and a half batters per nine innings, and I don't know if he can keep that up. But while a lot of people didn't think he could do this, and after 2011, I, don't, I think we finally gave up. The two years before, we had been talking about Hamill's great skill set. He was striking out seven batters per nine innings, only walking a little over two batters per inning. Again, a three-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio. We knew this guy, despite his ERA over four, was posting expected ERAs just under four. In 2010, his ERA was 481. His expected ERA was 396. We knew this guy had the tools to be an effective pitcher. We didn't expect a 287 ERA, however, and we don't going forward. He's probably going to be in the three-and-a-half range. But this is a, a good pitcher who's changed his arsenal. He's added a sinking fastball. He's had it last year, but he's really thrown it a lot more this year, about a third of the time, and that's increased his strikeout rate. Here's where a pitcher has definitely changed himself, made a dramatic improvement with the pitch. He didn't throw it at all in 2009. So by changing his arsenal, he's changed himself as a pitcher, and is riding high in Baltimore with a 97 base performance value and a nice 53% ground ball rate. Yeah, all of those things are really important, especially the addition of a new pitch. Uh, Ron Chandler has said in the Baseball Forecaster and here and in his columns that what you see is what you get year in and year out unless there's a fundamental change that you can point to. And adding a new pitch, and especially an effective pitch, is just such a change. Absolutely. And those are the things that the numbers don't show. And that's why you got to watch the games like we do and follow the teams and, and know what's really going on. While we're a numbers-oriented site and we love sabermetrics and like to analyze those numbers, you have to look at the outside factors, the subjective factors that make up a person's performance and utilize them as well. All right, Matt, thanks very much. You mentioned your Market Pulse commentary a little later in the show about um, not playing the percentages and just playing your best guys. Uh, thanks very much, and we'll catch up with you again in a week. Sounds good, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com, a video blogger, the official video blogger for Stratomatic, and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with Dr. HQ Rick Wilton is next. You are listening to Baseball HQ Radio. HQ Radio.
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Pleasure now to be joined for the third time this season by Dr. HQ. It's Rick Wilton from BaseballHQ.com, our injury expert. Rick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, Patrick. Good to be with you this week. And uh, always good to have you, Rick, because injuries such an important part of the game in real baseball, in fantasy baseball as well. And before we start talking about particular players, which is what people are really interested in, let me ask you this about elbow injuries. It seems like we're seeing an increasing number of these elbow injuries. Am I crazy, or, or are we just seeing more of these things? No, Patrick, I, really, I think you're, you're bringing up a really good point. Now, we're seeing it with younger pitchers. You know, Brandon Beachy's one. Uh, Kyle Drabeck's now having his second along with Sorry and whatever, and I think that we all know that there's cycles in baseball when it comes to injuries. One year you may have a lot of hamstring pulls, next year not so much, but it, it really does seem like with elbow injuries that we're seeing it more and more. And I just think because Tommy John is becoming so much, so much more prevalent uh, in, in sports medicine circles in baseball that um, that's why we're seeing more elbow injuries. And I think part of that is that pitchers are, um, you know, I think they're still spending too much time doing a lot of their weightlifting to build up arm and core strength and not enough throwing. And I think the teams that don't focus enough on the throwing part, I think those are the teams that we're seeing a few more elbow injuries than teams like the old Atlanta Braves, which if you look back other than John Smoltz, they were able to avoid elbow injuries. And Baltimore, for the most part, um, uh, seems to have a, a really good throwing program in to help avoid a lot of the elbow injuries that they normally would have. But we are definitely in the midst of a, uh, a rash of elbow injuries and you know as fantasy baseball owners we're frustrated with that because it usually means Tommy John surgery and loss of the player for about 12 months and it's not just pitchers either I mean Brett Gardner's on the shelf with an elbow problem Carl Crawford's on the shelf with an elbow problem uh, can we expect some kind of eruption in elbow injuries for position players as well no I, I I'm not quite I'm not sure if we're there yet with that situation I think in, in the case of those two players um I believe that they were probably trying to protect other situations, uh, a forearm situation with uh, with Gardner, I think. He had a really weak forearm, and I think that helped cause some of more elbow issues. And he also had a bone bruise on an elbow joint, too. And then as far as Crawford's concerned, he, uh, there's so much pressure on this guy to come back. I think he's just trying to do everything he had to come back. And I think uh, the extra batting practice he took in spring training or whatever, that's where the setback occurred. And... Um, so it cost him, you know, a considerable amount of time. But the the rash of elbow injuries, I think, right now is more so with pitchers and position players. But you bring up a point: maybe we may be seeing the beginning of uh, a cycle where we're going to see a lot more elbow injuries with position players. And it could be that. Uh... Just like you say, pitchers don't throw enough, perhaps in their training regimens, but it seems to me when I watch outfielders in the modern game, and I'm old enough to remember guys like Clemente and Mays and stuff like that, that they don't throw as well in general, and I'm wondering, is it because they're just not being taught to throw with proper mechanics out there? I'm not sure if it's uh, mechanics so much, Patrick, as it is. They just don't, like you just said, they just don't do as much throwing. I mean, when you, if you remember back when uh, Ichiro came over from Japan, we just marveled at that arm in right field. Um, it's because he came over from Japan and they didn't do a lot of weightlifting over there. They just do a lot of throwing. And I think when you look at players, whether it's high school or college or, or the minors, they're building their arm strength up more with weights and less with throwing. And no matter how much weightlifting you do, you can't simulate the throwing motion unless you can't build up the arm strength with long toss uh, for outfielders so that they're able to make those long throws that they need to when they're playing defense in the outfield and they end up having to make 
you know, uh, weak throws to the cutoff guy, and then the infielders end up having to make the throws to home plate or whatever position that it is. Yeah, I remember reading in ball four years ago, and and uh, one of these old ball players, probably from the forties or so, serving as a coach or a manager, talking in that in that book about how they used to get over a sore arm, and basically the guy said, "I stood at second base and threw the ball over the right field roof, you know, and, and t- until it felt better." Yeah, I mean that's what you did. You just stretched it out by throwing, and now they put ice on it and they baby it, and then they do a bit of. You know, strength building before they uh, try to come off the DL. If they went on the DL with the injury, and um, it, it just isn't anywhere near like it was. Uh, but we're just starting to sound like a bunch of old guys, I guess, with all this old <laughs> and stuff. But really, the game has changed. It's more uh, the the athletic conditioning is more weight lifting based and less by throwing and just normal baseball drills or whatever. And I think uh, we're seeing the end result that 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 is. Uh, a higher amount of injuries, whether it's, uh, you know, oblique injuries, which we've talked about before in the past, or elbow injuries or shoulder issues or whatever. It's just because of all the weights and lift and not enough stretching, which I think is another point that needs to be made. And, of course, it could be that back in the old days when the uh, these old veterans were throwing the ball over the roof to, to try to recover from a elbow injury or shoulder problem or whatever, baseball was a lot smaller, the reporting of injuries was a lot worse, the diagnostic skills were much uh, not nearly as advanced as they are now. So it could be that a lot of guys were making their injuries worse, falling out of baseball, and we just don't remember it because all we remember is guys who, who succeeded by doing that. Yeah, that's a great point. And, uh, you know, in those days, uh, you know, back uh, before the guaranteed contract, the players knew that if they, didn't, they couldn't play or didn't play, then they didn't get paid. So there was more motivation to stay on the field than I think in some cases hide the injuries. So um, the game has definitely changed compared to what it was 20 and 30, even 20, 30 years ago. It has indeed, yeah. Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Dr. HQ Rick Wilton. Rick, let's talk about some of the injuries we've heard about in the last couple of days or week, uh, starting with Colorado shortstop Troy Tulowitzki. He's had some surgery to remove scar tissue from a previous injury, and he's going to be out, what, five, six weeks? I, I would guess six. I would project six weeks from yesterday. And um, in Tulowitzki's case, boy, it could have been really, uh, really more serious. I thought when they went in to do the surgery, they left the door open. It made it sound like there was a possibility that he had a torn abdominal wall muscle. If that were the case, um, we'd probably be looking more like 10 to 12 weeks than um, the six or so we're looking at now. So from a, if, you're, if you're a tool whiskey owner, you're in good shape because it's only six weeks. And then what they did was they removed the scar tissue, which was preventing him from getting healthy enough to uh, get back on the field. It just every time we went out to do a workout, it just seemed like he um, would tear a little bit of scar tissue, and it's painful, but it also reduces the recovery. But uh, I think the bigger question with Tula Whiskey, Patrick, is that um, uh, he's obviously set a pattern in his career where he's unable to stay healthy. And as we just talked about, weightlifting and building up muscles with uh, weights rather than just workouts with uh, throwing and playing uh, and drills or whatever. I think Tulo is one of those guys where he just seems to break down physically for whatever reason, and this is just another result of that. And unfortunately, it may shorten his career like it did with somebody like um, Nomar garcia Parra, where he just couldn't stay healthy enough and his career was shorter than what it should have been, and that's unfortunate. 
Yeah, I remember reading a story about Tulowitzki a few years ago when I was having a discussion at the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums about this guy's injury risk, and he approached his physical training like a football player. A lot of weightlifting, a lot of strength building, that exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. Uh, it may be that sooner or later somebody's going to figure out that this just isn't working. Uh, Tampa Bay right-hander Jeremy Hellickson has gone on the DL. This was a really highly thought-of young pitcher. He's got what they call shoulder fatigue, going to be out around three weeks. But you're saying, I think, Rick, the Rays did a good job catching this. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think we forget sometimes is that there is a little bit of a cycle that we need to keep an eye on, especially with young pitchers. Um, usually the injury cycle goes weakness, and when there's weakness with a muscle, then the muscle becomes fatigued. Sometimes they can be uh, be confused with both of the same or be considered the same. But if it's not caught in time and treated, then it uh, can morph into tendonitis and then a torn muscle and tendon. So from the uh, the race point of view, it looks like the sports medicine staff did a perfect job of catching um, some shoulder fatigue. What they'll do is give him a little bit of physical therapy, make sure that the inflammation that he has in there, if he has a little bit, they get it out and they'll do some, some extra throwing and, and strength building with uh, some isometric exercises. And hopefully they'll uh, be able to keep it to the 15 to 21 day uh, frame. And I think that's going to happen. But, um, you know, young, young pitchers are so fragile. You got to keep an eye on them. And in, in his case, it looks like they caught it real early, which is a good thing. Scott Petsednik of Boston, uh, the outfielders on the DL with a strained left groin. This is not an uncommon baseball injury, but the story here is that the Red Sox are setting some kind of disabled list record. Yeah, right now the Red Sox have now made 20 DL moves over the course of the season, and uh, the record, based on my injury database, it goes back to 2002, and a lot of the, the HQ readers will see some of that information when you look in the baseball forecaster. We do put five years of uh, injury information in that uh, database. It's in the forecaster every year. But um, but going back to 2002, which is now 10 years, um, uh, the, the most moves in one season was 29 by the, the Texas Rangers, and that was back in, I believe, 2004. Um, so the Red Sox have got over a half a season to be able to uh, break that record. And, boy, the way it's going right now, I think that they're going to crash through the 30, the 30 DL move barrier before the end of the season. And you just have to look at what's going on with the Red Sox and um, uh, wonder what's, what, what, what is the deal with, with all the injuries. Is it related to conditioning? Is it just bad luck or whatever? And I'm sure the Red Sox medical staff will do a complete evaluation of the entire system once – the season's over, but um, uh, it's made a mess of their season, and it doesn't look like there's any uh, lit up in sight right now with Pasednik being the latest to go on the DL. And right before him, of course, Josh Beckett, uh, certainly a much more important piece of the Boston Red Sox puzzle, a strained right lat, and he's going to be out uh, at least to the end of the month, maybe longer. Yeah, that is, uh, his his strain is up in the area of the lat muscle for for uh, listeners that, that aren't quite aware where the muscle is. It's uh, the broad, flat muscle that's in the back of the shoulder that kind of goes over the, the shoulder blade a little bit on the lower part and connects underneath the armpit. And if the name sounds familiar, it's the same muscle that um, uh, the Jake Peavy tore off the bone when he was with the White Sox and had reattached, and that was a very rare injury. His injury, uh, that is, Beckett's is right up in the same area, right under the armpit and whatever, and that's why the Red Sox were were glad they caught it early before he had any kind of a tear or more serious injury. And I, I project right now that he's probably out until uh, 27, 28, 29th of June. 
Um, uh, without any setbacks, and if you have the setback, it could push him past the, back, past the all-star break. But um, the Red Sox definitely need him back, and they're, um, uh, they're pushing to get him back into the rotation as quickly as they can. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Dr. HQ, Rick Wilton. And, Rick, earlier in this program I was talking with Harold Nichols, our National League Market Watch analyst, about Ryan Dempster, who's having a good year uh, with some different skills, and now it turns out he's going on the disabled list, also with a lat problem. Yeah, for for uh, for Dempster owners who were probably hoping they would go to a team like the Texas Rangers or the Red Sox or somebody who could score some runs so they get some wins out of them, um, this couldn't be worse timing for him to go on the DL. And uh, uh, the good news is that the injury is not a tear of the lat muscle under uh, his pitching arm and uh, armpit and by the shoulder blade, but it's uh, uh, more due to tightness and a knot in the shoulder, and that's probably. Uh, uh, the the part of the injury that comes before the tear. So in his case, that's good. Um, I would think that his DL stint would be, uh, Patrick, probably between 15 and 17 days, maybe 18 days. Uh, so we'll see him back at, at that time frame. But unfortunately, what that's probably going to do is delay his trading and probably till after the All-Star break, which is unfortunate. It always sounds funny, Rick, when we see a guy going on the DL with a blister, but there's nothing funny about it from a pitching point of view. And Drew Smiley, who's having a great year, young left-hander in Detroit, he's on the DL. He has a blister on the middle finger of his pitching hand. This this is not a laughing matter. No, it isn't. And I happen to be watching that Tigers game because I had not seen him uh, this year at all, and I wanted to see what... Uh, uh, you know, what his mechanics look like and whatever. And he's a good-looking young pitcher. And when they took him out of the game, they had a close-up of the Detroit Tigers' feet on the satellite. And you could see the blister on the top of the, the finger, uh, the index finger on his pitching hand, but you also could see the blood that had built up underneath the blister. And the, um, the announcers were talking about it. It's One, it's real painful. But two, it will make the pitcher a lot more ineffective if he's got a blister because he can't get the touch on the pitch, but he also does not get the grip that he normally would get, so he loses velocity or control and command. And uh, it looks like a small injury, and we kind of maybe chuckle at it a little bit, but it's uh, it can be a fairly serious, serious problem for, for what I just stated, but also the fact that it's a slow healer, and he's on the DL because of it, and hopefully um, uh, the medical staff can get it cleared up so that uh, – you know, this promising young left-hander can uh, get back on the mound for the Tigers because they need all the help they can get to get back into the pennant race. Yeah, I mean, we've all had blisters for one reason or another, usually bad-fitting shoes and things like that. But the, a blister is basically just caused by constant rubbing in a, uh, against the skin, and it, it, it irritates the res, uh, your immune response system and starts to build up fluid in there. And the problem is for a pitcher, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, even after the blister has been uh, lanced or has you've recovered from it, you go right back and it's like putting on that bad pair of shoes because you're still using the same finger to rub against a leather baseball, and uh, it's it has the potential to just keep repeating because of the way you do things. Yeah, and the pitcher has what he has to do is he has to build up some sort of callus over the you know, where the blister was so that he has some some strength there so that it doesn't continue to go through a cycle where he keeps to redeveloping the um the blister and the fluid buildup that that you mentioned and uh, in most cases it's usually develop it's usually due to um uh the seam that's on the baseball and uh depending on how the pitcher holds a certain pitch um that will obviously impact the pitch but also uh that seam causes 
uh, increased friction with the, with the finger. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, to me, it seems like we used to see a lot more blister problems in the past than we do now. This is, uh, if my memory serves me correct, this is probably the first blister DL move of the season. So uh, even though we don't see it a lot, it can be very serious, and it can be a continuing injury that may, may plague him for most, if not all, of the season. Is there something that a pitcher can use or, or a ball player who's plagued by these issues like um, that artificial skin stuff that they you know paste onto your finger? Or um, I know in the old days they used to say put your hand in pickle brine and it would toughen up your skin and, and cause that callus to form. Do they still do that kind of stuff? Yeah, the baseball lore is full of all kinds of stories. Pickle brine. Uh, there's some pitchers, of, if you can believe this, they'll put super glue on their finger to hold the, the skin together. Um I've seen guys, I've taught, heard about guys, uh, you know, painting various versions of glue, industrial cement type situations. Um, they'll try about anything to get the blister, the skin to be toughened up so that the blisters don't keep reforming. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a classic baseball injury. In fact, I think every pitcher at one time or another probably went through it in his career, most times in the, the minors, and they get a routine down so that they know when they start to feel it that they go to the trainer and, and get the treatment for it. But, um, yeah, like we just said, it's a, it sounds like a small injury. It could be debilitating for a course of uh, weeks and weeks and months into the season because it just can't heal, and the pitcher just can't pitch at his, his uh, maximum ability. I actually remember reading about a guy who put his hand in a jar of his own urine, and to me, if if you're at that point, oh. you gotta you gotta go and you gotta say, you know what, uh, I gotta do something about this. Uh, Jason Bay has another concussion, the outfielder for the New York Mets. Rick, uh, is this the end of the road for him? This is starting to be like Sidney Crosby in the National Hockey League. Yeah, you know, and it's unfortunate. I mean, if you look, at, if you, if you remember seeing the uh, the video of the the injury on uh, Sports Center or wherever you get your your baseball highlights. I remember I didn't catch the game, but I remember seeing the highlight after the the Mets game. And what happened was he got he ran into the outfield wall, and just like it looked like it was a fairly close repeat of what happened in 2010, where it was kind of a jarring effect of his upper body, especially around his shoulder and his neck. And even though his head did not hit the wall, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer. I think sometimes we think the head has to hit a hard surface before the player has a concussion, and that is uh, further from the truth. And in Bay's case, uh, probably he got a concussion because the brain uh, inside his skull bounced off the inside of the, the skull bone, and that bruise uh, occurred, which is also known as a concussion, and that's where the injury occurred. And if the concussion is as serious as it possibly could be, uh, the last time he struggled with post-concussion, post-concussion syndrome symptoms for the course of about a half a season, it cost him an awful lot of baseball. Uh, we could be headed down the same road again uh, this year, and it could cost him uh, uh, DL time and downtime well into uh, – the latter part of the season. I really hope it isn't because he's a, a talented player, but um, uh, it, it is an issue. And then we don't know how many concussions uh, Bay has had in the past with with other sports. He played as a younger, you know, as a younger athlete, but that may be contributing to this also. 
Yeah, I was wondering about that too, Rick, because Jason Bay's a Canadian kid. He's from Trail, BC, which is a, a, a winter weather type of place. It's kind of up in the mountains a little bit. And you got to believe that he must have played some hockey as a young boy, as, as did Justin Morneau. And I, you remember Corey Koski, who played for Minnesota. All these guys have these concussion problems. And I wonder, is it possible that because they got some concussions as young men, either catching, which a lot of them did in uh, minor ball, or playing goaltender or playing hockey in general, concussions are cumulative, right? I mean, there's a chance that if you get a guy who's had a lot of concussions or even a handful of concussions as a young man playing other sports or playing baseball, that, you know, this is kind of a minefield that could really cause a problem for a guy like Bay who has a concussion, you think he comes back, but it's not his first one. It turns out it's his seventh one, and we don't know that. Yeah, we don't know that. You, Patrick, you bring up great points. We just don't know the medical history of of these players when they get concussions. And you want to know something? I bet you a lot of the, a lot of the cases the teams don't know, and maybe the Mets don't know how many concussions Bay Bay had when he was playing hockey and junior hockey and and in lower levels like that, where you know he got his bell rung, whether it was a check in the boards or or you know hit by a puck or whatever. And yeah, it definitely does have a, a cumulative effect. But I think it also brings to the forefront, we still do not know uh, everything we need to know about uh, concussions uh, in sports medicine and the continuing research is going on that we try to continue to make the games safer because of brain injuries. And we, you know, we see all the media focus on uh, the NFL players and what's going on with them in regards to concussion and brain injuries from players that have just retired. Uh, with Junior Sale bringing the uh, topic to the surface, I think with his suicide uh, uh, recently, and I think um, we just have to consider the concussion is a very serious injury. We still need to study it and get a better a better grasp of it, and, and uh, hopefully um, they can come up with some more uh, various trainings and equipment or whatever that can reduce the concussions with pro athletes, so we don't start losing. Uh, players like Sydney, you know Sidney Crosby, Crosby, and uh, uh, players in baseball, and whether it's soccer or football or whatever, and we can beat the concussion rap the best we can. And if so, we might be able to help out Fernando Martinez, outfielder in Houston. He's also on the DL with a concussion with a return date that's still not really fixed. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Dr. HQ, Rick Wilton of BaseballHQ.com. And, and Rick, uh, also every year it seems like we get groin injuries, especially among pitchers. This year is no, uh, no exception to the rule. Alexei Ogando, Felipe Polino, Stephen Pryor of Seattle, all on the DL with groin issues. Uh, what's going on with the groins? Yeah, I just think it's, uh, I think pitchers was, I think in some cases, teams will be, when it comes to the groin injury, uh, teams will be a little more cautious than they would be with other type of injuries because they know when a pitcher has a groin injury, even a minor one, what it will do is it will shorten the pitcher's stride. And when it shortens the stride, it can alter a pitcher's mechanics. And if that happens, then they may be more susceptible to an injury, whether it's an elbow injury or a shoulder injury. So the teams are really, really observational when they look at pitchers to make sure if they have any kind of a, a leg injury, especially groin injuries, they can really alter the stride and the the stretching of the, the pitcher that uh, they put him on the DL. And, uh, of course, it just goes back to that. I think uh, the problem overall with, with players and pitchers is that they're not doing enough stretching uh, in baseball. And because of that, uh, that makes them more susceptible to, to groin strains and hamstring strains and um, lands them on the DL when it probably could have been avoided. 
Is a groin strain the kind of thing that we should look at in a pitcher's past to uh, assess the risk of him having another one in the future? Like I, Just based on my experience in covering injuries all the years, I don't think that – I was supposed to say it this way. In most cases, I would think that there's probably not a pattern in a player's or a pitcher's career where if he has a groin injury in his rookie year that it'll surface every year or every, every other year or whatever. I think that once a pitcher has a groin injury uh, or a quad injury or hamstring injury, it, it affects his ability to, to pitch and stretch uh, and make a, a normal stride to the plate. I, I think that they then become uh, more proactive in making sure that their legs stay in excellent condition because in most cases with pitchers, if they have any issues with their legs, whether it's weakness or injuries, it does affect their overall pitching and they need to uh, uh, keep, uh, well, good care of their legs because that's a lot of their power source for their pitching. So um, I wouldn't be overly concerned with these pitchers or others if they have a groin injury that they're going to turn into a chronic situation. I think in, in almost every case, um, uh, they'll be they'll beat the injury. They'll recover from it, and they'll get back on the mound. And that's probably the last we hear of the injury that year, or maybe for the next year or so. And before we stop talking about current injured players, Bud Norris of Houston, a good young right-handed pitcher, a real favorite at BaseballHQ.com, he's got a sprained left knee. First of all, Rick, what's a sprained left knee mean? And second of all, he had some hip soreness, and that doesn't seem to have been included in the injury description this time. Yeah, and I'm not sure if we have the total uh, story yet with what's going on with with Morris. Uh, I mean, Norris. I'm sorry. Maybe what um, happened in his situation was that um, yes, he's on the DL with with a sprained knee. And I think what he did was when I went back and looked at some of the film, uh, was it looks like he was having trouble with his landing spot, and he just kind of um, tweaked his knee and he sprained the knee, and that's where the soreness came in. He developed maybe a little bit of fluid, even though we haven't heard the fluid part. But in the meantime, he's also got some hip soreness and and uh, as we know with pitchers, uh, they're creatures of habit. They need to repeat their delivery pitch to pitch to be effective. And I think in Norris's case, he's got two injuries. And I'm wondering maybe if uh, the hip problem's been kind of lingering in the back and that uh, caused him to alter his pitching motion. And what happened was he turned out to, to have a sprained knee. And now he's got two ailments that he needs to uh to take care of, but uh, we definitely know that he's out for a while and we probably won't see him back until just right after the All-Star break. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Dr. HQ, Rick Wilton of BaseballHQ.com. And Rick, before we let you go, we've had a couple of players come back from the DL, which is always the kind of news you'd rather talk about. Uh, First of all, Cody Ross, the Boston outfielder, had a stress injury in his left foot, the navicular bone. He's back. So the question is, how likely is he to pick up where he left off. He was having a pretty good year. Yeah, he's having a pretty good year, and I think he'll be a little bit rusty, obviously, as most players are when they come off the DL. In regards to the uh, the, the, the stress reaction, which was, you know, there's always there's been a debate in Boston whether it was a stress reaction, which is a uh, an injury, which is a, not quite a fracture. It just means the bone is weakening in a particular area, and if it's not treated, uh, then it becomes a stress fracture or a fracture. Um, and in his case, we're not quite sure if it was a stress reaction or a stress fracture with the navicular bone in his foot, and that's the biggest bone uh, at the base of the foot that uh, uh, that seems to be susceptible to foul balls. But in his case, he uh, his back, the Red Sox were happy his back. He uh, was swinging the ball. I uh, was swinging the bat pretty well, hitting the ball pretty hard uh, during his rehab work or whatever, so he's ready to go, and the Red Sox, 
need healthy outfielders, hopefully he's healthy enough to be productive. Um, I don't think we're going to see um, uh, a marked drop-off in his production. I think uh, once he shakes a little bit of the rust off his swing, I think he'll uh, pick up where he left off pretty quickly here with the Red Sox. And finally, Rick, Jared Weaver, uh, one of the better pitchers in all of baseball, right-hander with the Angels, of course. He had been on the DL with some back spasms. Everybody will remember seeing him leave the field. It looked fairly sad for him, but uh, uh, these back spasms seem to have subsided. He's back in the rotation. How likely is it that he uh, picks up and carries on? Yeah, I think I think from this, this point to the end of the season, we probably will not hear any more uh, issues with his back. I'm sure what the... Um, the Angels medical staff did was to make sure that he now incorporates extra stretching and make sure that his back stays strong between now and the end of the season so he does not suffer uh, a relapse of the spasms in his back. And I think uh, if they pay attention to the detail and the exercises and the uh, the back program that he's now on, uh, we shouldn't have any problems with uh, Weaver landing on the DL with back problems the rest of the season. He should pick up right where he left off uh, before the injury where he was one of the best pitchers in the American League. And his first game back on June 20th, he uh, had no trouble with the San Francisco Giants. He went six innings, didn't give up an earned run, a couple of hits, a couple of walks, three strikeouts, so a pretty solid return for Jared Weaver. So I guess what you're saying, Rick, nothing much to worry about. You can go out and get Jared Weaver in a trade. Uh, by all means, go ahead and do it. Yeah, I would definitely. I have him on my team, and I, I would not worry about him at all. In fact, I watched the entire start just to see how he was doing, and he had good extension with um, his pitches to the plate. I didn't see any uh, any favoring of his back at all during that start. So it looks like uh, he's loosened the back up. The spasms are gone, and he's strong, and he's he's ready to roll. And I think uh, he'll make a run at the Cy Young Award when uh, Cy Young Award uh, in the American League this year. All right, Rick Wilton, before we let you go, I know you want to take 30 seconds to remind our mostly male listening audience about some important steps they need to take to look after their own health. Yes, uh, I like to do this at every at the end of every session that I do with, with you, and I appreciate the time. Patrick, is that I just want to uh, advise our uh, 40 and older uh, Baseball HQ listeners to please make sure that you get your yearly prostate exam, the blood test, and also visit with your doctor and discuss your health because, uh, as a lot of the uh, listeners know, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, last spring. Uh, uh, I am blessed to be in remission. I feel great. I'm doing really well. I'm ready to uh, uh, get ready to go to Arizona Fall League this fall, and uh, I'm doing real well. But I could have been avoided if I made sure that I went in every year at the at the anniversary mark. So I tell people, please get your annual checkup of your prostate and avoid uh, going through the situation I've had to go through and uh, uh, catch prostate cancer before it gets too serious and really affects your health for the long term. You're welcome, Rick. And it's very sound advice. It's a, it's a relatively simple thing to deal with if you catch it right at the start. And if you wait or delay, then you're just adding to your trouble and making your prognosis worse. So thanks very much, uh, Dr. HQ Rick Wilton. We'll catch up with you again again during the year. Thanks, Patrick. Good talking to you. We'll talk to you soon. Rick Wilton is Dr. HQ, the injury analyst and expert at BaseballHQ.com. Our commentaries are next. This is Baseball HQ Radio.
HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with the Market Pulse and BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler in the hole with Master Notes. And leading off the Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about Houston outfield prospect George Springer. The Houston Astros' George Springer was quickly developing into one of the better center field prospects in the National League. Springer was the 11th overall pick in the 2011 draft after a standout career at the University of Connecticut and is the rare collegiate outfielder who is a true five-tool talent. At 6'3", 200 pounds, Springer has good size, generates plus bat speed, and has plus raw power. Springer can still be fooled by quality breaking balls and will need to make more consistent contact if he's going to hit for power and average, but he does have decent strike zone judgment. On the basis, Springer is an above-average runner and has the potential to be a 2020 player once he reaches the majors. Defensively, Springer is well above average in center field where he takes good routes to the ball and has a very strong throwing arm. While Springer still has some work to do, the Astros have to be thrilled with his development so far. To start the season, the Astros challenged him with an assignment to high A in the California League, and so far he's responded very well, hitting 303 with a 381 on base percentage and a very nice 559 slugging percentage. He has 11 doubles, 6 triples, 14 home runs, 14 stolen bases, and has scored 58 runs in 62 games. With the addition of Springer, Jonathan Singleton, and the 2012 first overall pick, Carlos Correa, the Houston Astros have quickly rebuilt their once anemic farm system and finally have some young talent to build their organization around. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, and Colby Garropy have reports and updates on organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Jeremy's call-up reports this week have looked at Detroit right-hander Jacob Turner, Oakland catcher Derek Norris, Milwaukee right-hander Tyler Thornburg, Tampa right-hander Chris Archer, and Texas outfielder Leonis Martin. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about whether you should follow the new Rockies pitching strategy on your fantasy team. It's so refreshing to see how the Colorado Rockies are re-engineering their rotation and their whole pitching staff for that matter. They're going with a four-man rotation with a soft 75-pitch limit. And the result is, in about the fifth inning, they're having to make a pitching change. They don't care about the win for the pitcher, and they bring in the second reliever either to finish out that inning, or if it's the end of an inning, they're bringing their next guy for three innings, basically, to get them into the seventh or eighth for their closer. First of all, it's refreshing to see a new approach. We've gotten so segmented in this game where people play matchups in the bullpen so strongly, and then they wonder why games take so long. Games are averaging five or six pitchers per team in relief, and we've got to sit there in the stands or on TV and watch them warm up and wonder why the game's going three, four hours. It's nice to see some old-fashioned where they used to ride the hot reliever. If you had a guy in the 7th or 8th inning mowing hitters down, you left him in. You'd never want to change that formula. Just like if your starter was doing well, you wouldn't want to take him out either. So it's nice to see an alternative philosophy. It makes me wonder some of the other alternatives that might be out there. Why not use four different pitchers for two innings every game? Research has shown that more important than pitch count, 
having a pinch hitter, for example, in the pitcher spot in the National League each time through the lineup will produce more runs than watching pitch count will save. Similarly, what about three pitchers for three innings every four days? Use your 12-man pitching staff in that way. That may be a little too extreme, but my point is it's nice to see people open their minds and think about different options. It reminds me of my Stratomatic days that so many manager, managerial strategies we say now we had done in Stratomatic years ago. On-base percentage has been a real facet of Strat manager strategies for decades, long before it hit the majors in Moneyball. I remember one year I had a team that made the World Series with Felipe Lira and Jose Lima in their rookie seasons. A very mediocre pitching staff, but if I could get through five innings, I had career years from Steve Reed, Jeff Nelson, and Rick Aguilera that the game was basically over because of my strong pen, and I could ride those relievers. So it's funny how strategies used a long time ago can come back today. How does this affect your strat or roto team now? Well, how much do you play matchups? We see major league managers going with small at-bats, and it's a very small sample size, but they're making big decisions based on those samples. How many times do you look at your lineup if you're in a daily league or weekly league and determine which pitcher you pitch by the matchup, who they're pitching against, and what team? How many times, I know I got one points league, I have three left-handed batters, and I have to figure out which one's going to face fewer left-handed pitchers for the week, so I can set up the right guy for the ideal matchup. That works out much of the time, but a lot of the time it really doesn't. You're often better to set your lineup with your best players and not overreact to every little potential matchup that could happen during the week. You overthink it, and you find yourself giving up on James McDonald early in the year, or a Ryan Dempster who hadn't gotten wins before he got hurt. You find yourselves make, missing the big picture of good players because you're so intent for the matchup for that week or for that evening in the daily league. Set your lineup with your best players and make sure you're only doing minor tweaks depending on the matchups. You can learn a lot, as we all can, when we see managers experiment with strategies like the Rockies are in 2012. With a market pulse for Baseball HQ, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about his Alex Cobb saga, a tale of love and loss. If there is one organization that you have to pay attention to when it comes to player development, it's the Tampa Bay Rays. How many major league pitching staffs can you look at and find a full rotation of highly productive arms and all homegrown? So coming into this season, I was particularly enamored with following Alex Cobb. Here was a pitcher who had consistently improved his ERA at every level. At AAA last year, he had a 187 ERA with a 9.4 strikeout rate and a strikeout-to-walk ratio of 4.4. Those are all elite-level numbers. But the Tampa rotation was solid and healthy, so he'd start the year in the minors. Still... I was thrilled to find him available when my second pick of the reserve round came up in the Tout Wars AL Experts League. I grabbed him. Now understand, in a deep 12-team AL-only league like Tout, every roster spot, active and reserve, is precious. It is tough to justify holding on to players as speculations, particularly with this season's flood of injuries. 
any able-bodied player is going to trump a wager on future potential. But I was lucky in the early going. Despite a struggling team, I was able to keep my roster decisions balanced between maintaining active players and positioning my team for six long months of roster churn. Then May 14th came. I had to make a bunch of moves to accommodate Mark Reynolds' visit to the disabled list, Michael Taylor's demotion, and an ill-advised $0 fab purchase of Kelvin Herrera. A decision had to be made on some reserves, and it had to be made based on how blocked each player was on his respective organization's depth chart. And unfortunately, bats had more value than arms. And there was Alex Cobb, who wasn't cooperating at all. While his peripherals remained strong in AAA, his ERA at that point had popped to 414, and his whip was an ungodly 1.51. All five members of the Rays rotation were healthy and productive at that time. Cobb might be blocked for nearly the whole season, like Matt Moore was last year, and Jeremy Hellickson was the year before that. I took a breath and made the nasty cut. And quickly, as if I had awakened the gods of fantasy karma, the fates kicked in with a vengeance. One day later, on May 15th, Jeff Neiman took a line drive off his leg, fracturing it. He'd be out four to six weeks. The race had a choice as to who to promote to the rotation. They could have chosen Wade Davis, but no, they picked Alex Cobb. Now, I could have placed a fab bid the following week to get him back on my team, but the situation was so demoralizing that I just couldn't bring myself to place more than a token bid. He ultimately went for $31 out of Chris Liss's $100 budget, way more than I'd pay anyway. I had only one hope left. Alex Cobb had to stink up the joint. But, of course, he hasn't. He's held his own, despite a few rough outings. When he shut down the Marlins on two hits with ten strikeouts last week, it was like he tore my heart right out of my chest. If he keeps pitching like this, the Rays will be hard-pressed to remove him from the rotation, even when Neiman returns. This is a freaking nightmare. I know that we play a game where we often have to make tough decisions, But I wonder, in these days of high volatility, whether we should be relaxing some rules rather than tightening the grip. In Tout Wars, we are limited to just four reserve players, a rule intended to beef up an ever-depleting free agent pool. We've enacted other rules intended to yield the same result, but it's not working. This week, our free agent pool consists of 15 batters, none that get more than 10 at-bats per week and 55 pitchers, nearly all middle relievers. There are 51 players on the disabled list. That's just the American League. Now, there is a whole separate discussion about breaking away from archaic rules and embracing the new realities of the way the game is played today. We'll have that discussion, too, soon. But right now, it's me coming to terms with a bad decision or... A good decision with bad outcomes, or a decision that perhaps didn't even have to be made. It's been agonizing. In a high-level league where there is no room for error, and fancy strategies are pointless when your DL list has more players than your pitching staff.
I can't get past it. I've been lying awake at night dreaming about Florida. No, not sparkling white sands and cool beach breezes. My dreams have been incessant visions of a Tampa Bay Ray striking out Marlin after Marlin after Marlin. Curse you, Alex Cobb. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler writes a weekly column that appears every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about secret insights from the pages you never go to. Ron also has a weekly chat every Wednesday morning at 11 Eastern at usatoday.com, and he discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Ron's Master Notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also brings his Master Notes here to Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of June the 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 23 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and rate our show. Give us those five stars. I also want to thank our guest today, starting with Dr. HQ Rick Wilton. Rick is a great guy, and he knows so much about those injuries, and injuries are playing an increasingly important role in fantasy baseball these days. Also, thanks to our regular lineup from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and Matt Beagle, who was also our Market Pulse commentator this week. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon, and our Master Notes commentator, as always, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some terrific features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Josh Paley and Gene McCaffrey have their mid-season update on the Diamond Challenge. This is a really interesting item that we have from time to time for Diamond Challenge players. Colby Garapi's Miners Watch List looks at minor leaguers like Tom Kaler of Miami and Louis Durango of Atlanta, guys who are showing good skills and just waiting for a chance to contribute. Doug Dennis's bullpen's column is Speed Bumps, about reliever anomalies and what they tell us about what might happen. Plus, we'll have our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide appears every Tuesday. And I have a roto strategy essay about fab bidding in leagues of $100 versus $1,000 fab limits. I also hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.